All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15. Last week, we began in John chapter 15. We looked at verses 1 through 17, and we're in this series called What We Need. And last week, we did the easy one, What We Need Is Love. And uh, some of y'all wanted to sing a song about all we need is love. Dun, 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 dun. All you need is Y'all got that one? Yeah, some of y'all knew that. Okay. Um, that was last week. This week, we're looking at uh, a turn that Jesus takes. So we're beginning in verse 18 of John chapter 15. We're going to go all the way through the end of John chapter 16. But if you remember what Jesus said in, in John 15, 1 through 17, first of all, he said, he said, as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. <clears throat> Abide in my love. And he said, now, the Father's loved me. God the Father has loved Jesus Christ the Son. And, and in the way that the Father has loved the Son, Jesus said, I'm loving you that way. I'm loving you purposefully. I'm loving you intentionally. I'm loving you passionately. I'm loving you sacrificially. He said, no greater love is anyone than this. Lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, I've called you friends. And Jesus laid down his life for his friends. So he's saying, look, I'm loving you in a very particular way. So make your home in that love. Sink the roots of your soul down into the soil of Christ's love. Let Christ's love saturate your life. Make your home in the love of Christ. Abide in that love. Now, as we looked at how to abide in his love and, and that kind of stuff, we saw that last week. But, but man, that's a feel-good. Talk about the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for us. And, and then in verse 17, he said, A new commandment I give you that you love one another. So here is the, the, the mandate. There's this flowing of love. The Father loved the Son, and the Son uh, took that love that the Father gave him, and he became a reservoir for that love to reach us. And as the Father's love through the Son hit our life, then we become the conduit or the avenue for that love to hit other people's lives. So, so we receive that love so that we can give that love. But verse 18, it seems like the feel-good has changed. In verse 18, and, and I'm going to read, uh, begin verse 18 through uh, verse 25. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So he's gone from abide in my love to the world hates me. And the world's going to hate you. It doesn't sound very feel-goodish. All right. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep your word also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also uh, hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. All right, so Jesus goes from talking about all we need is love, and he's talking about hostility. Look over in verse, uh, chapter 16. Look at verses 1 and following. He says, These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. 
They will put you out of the synagogues. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think they offer service to God. These things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus is talking about severe trouble that's on its way. He's talking about opposition and persecution, hostility, not just for Jesus, but for his followers. Do you realize, as a follower of Jesus Christ, that we should expect opposition, hostility, and persecution? We are not greater than, the, uh, the, than our master, Jesus Christ. We should expect it. We should anticipate it. Now, in America today, we've been kind of uh, persecution-free. I know you don't feel like that sometimes. But just because they say that you can't do a certain act does not mean that's persecution. Persecution is what's happening in the Middle East. Persecution is what's happening with ISIS killing 21 martyrs because they believe on Jesus and will not turn away from him. Persecution is when you lose your job because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution is when uh, your family will not have anything to do with you and you are homeless because of your faith in Jesus Christ. That's persecution. Now, we're not there yet. I'm an optimist trying to be a realist. And I believe that there will be a day when we face persecution in America as followers of Jesus Christ. And it should be that way. Listen, here's the thing. In America today, we have more and more people who look at followers of Christ like we're dinosaurs. And we are. It's not a function of age. It's a function of belief. We have a particular worldview. Make no mistake. A worldview is defined like this. A worldview uh, is simply beliefs, customs, practices, principles by which a person lives. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a particular worldview. A worldview that is defined by God, written in his word. Here is our worldview. It is given to us by the Spirit of God, awakened in our lives by the Spirit of God, but it is written in the very word of God. We, we develop our worldview from the Bible. Because we believe it to be the authentic, reliable, authoritative, absolute truth of God to us. That being said, not everyone agrees. In fact, when Jesus said that the world is going to hate you because the world hated me, when he uses the term world, he's not talking about uh, the third rock from the sun. He's talking about the customs attitudes, beliefs, and practices and principles that are hostile to God. The very definition of the world is, an, is a worldview in opposition to the biblical worldview. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have adopted a biblical worldview, and we will not give it up. All right? All that is absolute truth. Now, here's the problem. There is a tension that begins to be created when a worldview that is contrary to Scripture begins to dominate um, a particular locale. 
when a worldview contrary to Scripture begins to dominate a particular locale, then, then what happens is the, those who are followers of Christ will believe and act and, 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 and pursue different priorities than the people who have a priority that's hostile to a biblical worldview. That tension is created, and, and most of the time we can live within that tension. Most of the time we can live within that tension because most people in American culture in the past have been kind of, well, you know, you believe your thing, I believe my thing, and it'll be okay. In America today, though, there are certain hot-button topics that people are saying, if you believe contrary to this particular hot-button topic, uh, you're, a, you're a bigot. There'll be a day when if I stand here before you and I say homosexuality is a sin, every bit as much as adultery or gossip or slander is a sin, there'll be a day when I'm going to be accused of being an uncaring, unfeeling bigot. I, that's going to happen. Okay, that's going to happen, but that's okay. And, and, and we don't need to be crybabying around saying, what, I can't believe this. Jesus already prepared us for it. So let's not pretend like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Well, of course we can believe it. It happens. So what Jesus does in these verses is he's saying to his followers, who, by the way, were getting ready to get smacked on top of the head with persecution and hostility, he was saying to them, all right, now, let me give you hope in the face of persecution. Let me give you hope in the face of opposition. Let me give you hope in the face of difficult days. Boy, that's what we need. And that's what he gives. So the very first thing we see in this passage is that uh, Jesus describes the opposition that's going to happen and the opposition that many of us will face. But, but then he gives us the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit awakens hope in us. You look in verse 26 and 27. Uh, Jesus once again begins to talk about the Spirit of God. He says, but when the Helper comes... Now, I like that term. It's, it's the, uh, the Greek term parakletos, and, and it, it, it can mean comforter, encourager, helper, uh, counselor, advocate. It can mean a whole host of different things. Talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit of God is all of those things for us. You want to know what awakens hope in a follower of Christ is when we are yielded to the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God awakens in us the very presence of God and the power of God. The Spirit of God is the one who helps us through the difficult days and, and, and uh, when those 21 martyrs stood before uh, their executioners about to lose their head and they were given a chance to say, no, I believe uh, that I won't believe in Jesus anymore. And yet they stood firm and they began to sing songs and their family were proud of them for giving their lives for Jesus. You know what awakened that kind of courage and hope in those martyrs and in their families? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God draws us close to the Father, unites our hearts with Him. It's the Spirit of God that tells us why Jesus 
starts talking about loving one another and then immediately goes into this discussion about the world hating us. Why would Jesus talk about love and then hate and then the Holy Spirit? Well, because what we're supposed to do, first and foremost, is love one another. That's verse 17. Here's here's the commandment I give you, that you love one another. Do you want to know who helps us love one another? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to obey the commands of Jesus. This is his command, that we love one another. But Jesus knew that we're going to need to be saturated in this community of believers where we feel the love, where we feel that family connection, where we feel nourished and nurtured and and encouraged and strengthened. Friends, that's what the church is supposed to be about. And so when we are commanded to love one another, Jesus is saying, I want you all to get busy excelling in love for one another. And the Spirit of God will equip you and enable you to love the way you're supposed to love. Now, can I tell you something? Can I just say, suggest that, that when we, as a church, experience the persecution that, they're exper- that the church is experiencing in the Middle East today and in India and in Africa and other parts of the globe, then they're not going to be so worried and divided over the color of the carpet or the paint on the walls. They're more interested in finding family love and uniting over the Spirit of God's words and heart toward them. They're not going to be so consumed with the non-essentials and the silly discussions that we have in the American church today. Friends, it's time for the American church to grow up. It's time for us to love each other the way Jesus has taught us. It's time for us to stop playing these silly, simple games of, of, uh, uh, of, of peacetime soldiers where we're not interested in, in the passionate loving of each other, but rather we'd rather divide over the songs we sing in worship to the king. Guys, I got to tell you, that is not loving each other. And you might say, well, I just want to hear my song. Go get the playlist on iTunes. But when we get in here, we are a community of believers called to love each other the way Christ has loved us. And we better excel in love because tough times are coming. And the tougher the time that comes, the more we're going to need each other. Guys, I need you. You need me. We got to have each other. And when times get tough, we got to love each other. And we got to feel the love. Are you feeling the love? We must excel in love, not just for each other, but we've got to excel in love for all. See, it's the Spirit of God that enables us and equips us when we have the, the, the sword at the base of our neck ready to give its death blow. It is the Spirit of God that enables us and equips us to love that person holding the sword the way Jesus loved the people that killed him on a cross. We need the Spirit of God to awaken hope in us that we can love all. See, we've got to love well. That means we've got to excel in love, in loving each other. But we've got to excel in love, in loving those who don't love us. It is inexcusable for a Christian to behave like a non-Christian just because a non-Christian says ugly things to that Christian. And it doesn't matter if you're going on a rant on Facebook 
or if you're talking on your phone to your neighbor, it is inexcusable for a follower of Jesus Christ to act like a mere man or woman unredeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have been called to a higher calling where we are called to love all, even those who disagree with us, even those who oppose us, even those who despise us, even those who hate us. We are called to love them the way Jesus loved us. And you know how Jesus loved us. He died for us. Now, we can't have that kind of love. We can't excel in love like that in our own power. But praise be to Jesus Christ who has given us the Spirit of God who enables us to excel in love. He is our helper, helping us to do what Jesus has called us to do, to love well, but also to witness. See, the Holy Spirit of God enables us to witness, and the helper comes, and, and, and when the helper comes, he will guide us into all truth, but he guides us into all truth so that we can give our testimony, give our witness to a watching world of what Jesus who he is and what he's done for us and how he saved us from our sin and shattered the shackles of shame and guilt and, and given us a new life uh, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We are called, John 15, 26, we are called to be witnesses for Jesus. And you might think to yourself, as you look at the name of the person that God has identified for you, as you look at the name of that person, you might think to yourself, I can witness that person all day and all night, but that person's heart is hard against God. And you might say, they don't care about the things of God. They're not interested in church. I don't know how I'm going to reach them. And my witness, you think my witness is going to make a difference? And I say, yes. You want to know why? Because the Holy Spirit of God joins his witness with our words and empowers them and enables them so that, so that the person who hears it, something begins to happen. Something begins to happen on the inside of them. You look in John chapter 16. You look at verses 8, 9, 10 and 11. And essentially, let me summarize. Essentially, uh, Jesus says that the spirit of truth will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That word convict in the Greek language, eklekto, it means to convince. It means to hold a trial and condemn. It means to, 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 to be an advocate that, that pleads with a person. It means all those different things. But in this passage, here's what I think it means. I think it means that the Spirit of God bears witness with our witness. That's, verses, uh, that's John 15, 26, and 27. We witness, and the Spirit bears witness. So what happens when the Spirit of God bears witness is he looks at the person whose name is on that card to whom you are witnessing. And he sees that person, and he begins to speak into the life of that person. And he begins to convince and convict that person of sin, even bring bringing that sense of condemnation for sin. It shows the person that their sin has separated them from God. Convicts the world of sin and of righteousness. That that, that that person's righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. That no matter how much they try to make up for the sin in their life, it's not going to work. But shows them that the righteousness of God, the righteousness that is pleasing to God, the righteousness that will make them fit for heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God moves from convicting of sin and convicting of righteousness, then convicts of judgment. And he says to that person 
who, who you, who, to whom you are witnessing. He says that person, now's the moment because if you do not believe on Jesus Christ, if you do not receive him, then there will be judgment waiting for you. The God of this world is already judged. He's already beaten and he's already defeated. You have a chance, the Spirit of God will say, to embrace the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. And if you do not, judgment is on its way. The Spirit of God is the one who speaks into the deep places of a person's life. It's not you and it's not me. Here's hope for us. I just have to be obedient. I have to love well and witness. That's all I have to do. The Spirit of God will do the rest. Here's our hope. Not in what we do, but what the Spirit of God does in us and through us. All right, so the Spirit of God awakens hope in us. Secondly, uh, Jesus gives hope that our sorrow will give birth to joy. Uh, again, I don't have time to go through all of this, and, and uh, again, I could preach for hours on this passage, but I have to, I have to move it along because you're looking at the clock, and you're saying, that's point two. He always has three points, but today I have four. So now you're really nervous. Uh, Jesus gives hope that sorrow gives birth to joy. Now, Jesus has already described difficult days, but now he throws another, another whopper on the disciples. He's saying, I'm going away, I'm going away, I'm going away. Now, we looking on the store, we know that Jesus is saying, I'm getting ready to be killed, I'm getting ready to be killed, I'm getting ready to be killed. Now, the disciples finally hear Jesus talking about going away, and they get, they get sorrowful. They're, they're filled with confusion and doubt. They've been following this guy. Now they don't understand. What do you mean you're going away? We don't get it, Jesus. We're confused. What's going to happen to us? Now, verse 21, he says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I'll see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Jesus is saying, here's the hope that can be awakened in your life. I, we live in a day of Friday death, a Friday cross, a Friday doom, a Friday despair. We live in a world where Friday seems to be the biggest dominating uh, wrecking ball in our world. It's Friday where Jesus went to the cross and he was killed and darkness hovered over the earth and, and, and things began to shake and tremble. Yeah, we know how, how difficult, how painful that death is. And, and, and yet, yet Jesus was pointing his disciples beyond the Friday tomb to, to Sunday resurrection. And, and we, need to, we need to have that kind of point of view. Jesus said, look, there is hope for you. Even though you're in the in-between, you're not yet to Sunday, but you're not really on Friday. You're living in that in-between and, and you feel like despair is winning the day. Get a new perspective. Get a little hope. Your sorrow will be transformed into joy. Like a mama going through the pain of childbirth in order to have the joy of that brand new baby 
baby. Today, we are going through the pain of our suffering, but there is joy on the other side. Here's our hope. It is Friday, but yes, Sunday's coming. It is painful now, but resurrection is on its way. We can have hope. We can have life. We're not living in the despondent despair of the dismal swamps any longer, but now we can see the sun is rising. Listen, definition of hope. Here it is. Hope is even in the deepest darkness, you know the sun's about to rise. Today we live in hope. Our sorrow here is but fleeting moments. It doesn't even begin to compare to the joy that belongs to those who trust in Christ. Here is our hope. Yes, death is real. Our hurt is real. Our pain is real. But we live in a supernatural reality where Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. There's hope. We need a new perspective every day. Not just once. Not just when we celebrate Easter in a couple of weeks. We need a new perspective every day. I need to wake up with my mind on the resurrection. I need to wake up with the hope that something new has started. Praise God. He's at work today. And what he's doing is good. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. Write it down. Remember it. You probably know it. Sorrow may last for a night, but what? What comes in the morning? Tell me what comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. I mean, we can weep, but see, what happens is we get, and I know I'm only on point two and it's 12.03, but we get all crossways. Look, we get all crossways. We become so defined by our tears that we forget that the tears are there and they're real, but we're defined by an empty tomb. We're defined by a living hope. We're defined by a resurrection. Today, let your life, even the sorrow and the suffering that you're facing here and now, let this in-between moment be defined not by the pain, but by the promise, the resurrection is on its way. So the, 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 Jesus gives us this hope in a resurrection. The third thing we see in this passage is that Jesus uh, helps us have hope in help from God. We have hope in help from God. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, in that day, what day? The day after his resurrection, the day in which we're living here. In that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, here's, I don't have time to develop it, but here's what it comes down to. Look, you need help. Ask God, and he'll help. If there is a revolutionary truth that you take home with you today that will awaken hope in your heart, here it is. Ask, and you will receive from the hand of God. God wants to help you. He wants to help you. You say, well, well uh, Eric, you don't understand. I, I asked him last week to help me with something, and he didn't do anything. Stop treating God like he works at McDonald's. 
We need to persevere with God in prayer. If you think he didn't hear you, get on your face and stay there until you know he does. We need to persevere in prayer before a holy God, asking him for help. Here's what I know. I know that God in heaven has loved us so much that he determined to send Jesus to help us with our sin. And that same God who loves us enough to send Jesus to die on a cross for our sin is the same God, the loving father who wants to help you right now in your problem, in your fear, in your struggle, in your in-between. You got a problem. Go to the Father, cry out for help, and stay there until you know he hears you. Y'all got me a little Pentecostal today. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus went to the cross, but he knew there would be an empty tomb. And Jesus went to the cross, and he despised the shame of it. But he endured it because he saw the joy on the other side. And when he cried out to the Father, he knew that help was on its way. Today, you and I need to have the perspective of Jesus. And as we're going through the in-between, I don't know what happened to Jesus when he died. But I know it wasn't nice. And I know it wasn't fun. And I know it wasn't, wasn't a, a, a Disney ride. But I do know that whatever happened, he knew that God was about to bring help to him. We live in the in-between, and we might not understand what's happening. We might not understand how bad it is, but we can go to God. And when we go to him in faith, when we trust him, when we believe him, we cry out to him for help. Make no mistake, help is on its way. The Father, the Father loves you. So ask him for help. We get into trouble because we forget to ask him. We ask so quickly that we're not really asking. You know, asking like my girls ask me for money. They've already got the debit card in hand. You know what I'm saying? We ask. We ask like we're going through a fast food restaurant. Sometimes we don't ask at all. When we don't ask at all, we're in trouble. We're trying to do it ourselves. We're trying to manage it ourselves. We need, to, we need to humble ourselves before a holy God. Tell him, I can't do this on my own. You, that might not be a problem for you, but can I just confess? That's a problem for me. I struggle with that. I mean, I, I like to do it on my own. It just doesn't work out very well. Hope is not in me. It's in my Father who loves me. Cry out for help and have hope in God. The last thing, last point. Jesus gives us hope in his victory. You look at verse 33. It says, um, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I, I love that verse. I mean, it just it pinpoints the, the, the way in which we live our life. Hey, we, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Tribulation there, it's a Greek term, flipsis. And it simply means a tight spot. And we're being pressed in in the tight spot. And we're being squished in the tight spot. And there's no escape from the tight spot. And we're, we're, we're under the press of it. And we don't know how to get out of it. It's persecution. It's opposition. It's hostility. It's troubles. And, and it's 
it, it's stuff that, that we can't fix and we can't manage and we can't navigate. We're in trouble and, and it's in that tight spot that, that we have one hope and that hope is not our victory. It's not our ability. It's not the way we manage the situation. Our hope is in the victory of Jesus Christ. See, it's Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave, not Eric Thomas. It's Jesus who conquered the death, hell, and the grave, not you, my friend. It is Jesus who gained the victory. And if we're going to live in hope, it's because we're living in his victory every single day. I'm counting on Jesus conquering death, hell, and the grave to be my power, my supply, my hope, my confidence. He is the one who gives me good cheer, even in the tight place. You want to know why? Because he's overcome the world. So let's walk with him. Let's cling to him. For he truly is our hope.